Section 13 of History of Modern Philosophy by Alfred William Benn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Humanists of the Nineteenth Century. Part 2. Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer, 1820 to 1903, was the son of a nonconformist country schoolmaster but was educated chiefly by his uncle thomas an evangelical clergyman of the church of england a radical reformer of the old school thomas spencer seems to have indoctrinated his youthful charge with the germinal principles afterwards generalized into a whole cosmic philosophy he had a passion for justice realized under the form of liberty individual responsibility and self-help in his opinion until it was modified by private misfortunes everything served everybody right beginning as an economical administrator of the new poor law he at last became an advocate of its total abolition and alone among fifteen thousand clergymen he was an active member of the anti-corn law league besides supporting the separation of church and state at twenty-two herbert spencer accepted and summed up this policy under the form of a general hostility to state interference with individual liberty supporting it by a reference to the reign of natural law in all orders of existence in his first great work social statics the principle of laissez-faire received its full systematic development as the restriction of state action to the defence of liberty against internal and external aggression the raising of taxes for any other purpose being unjust as is also private ownership of land which is by nature the common heritage of all spencer subsequently came to abandon land nationalization probably from alarm at its socialistic implications the doctrine of natural law and liberty carried with it for spencer a strong repugnance not only to protectionism in politics but also to miracles in theology the profession of journalism brought him into touch with a free-thinking set in london whether under their influence or shelley's or by some spontaneous process his religious convictions evaporated by twenty-eight into the agnosticism which thenceforth remained their permanent expression there might or might not be a first cause if there was we know nothing about it at this stage lyle's attempted refutation of lamarck converted spencer to the belief in man's derivation from some lower animal by a process of gradual adaptation thus the scion of an educationalist family came to interpret the whole history of life on our planet as an educative process it seemed however as if there was one fatal exception to the scheme of naturalistic optimism the rev thomas malthus had originally published his essay on population in seventeen ninety eight as a telling answer to the infidel godwin's political justice seventeen ninety three the bolder precursor of social statics the argument was that the tendency of population to outrun the means of subsistence put human perfectibility out of the question it had been suggested by the idealists mill among the number 
that the difficulty might be obviated by habitual self-restraint on the part of married people. But Spencer, with great ingenuity, made the difficulty its own solution. The pressure of population on the means of subsistence is the source of all progress, and of progress not only in discoveries and inventions, but also through its increased exercise in the instrument which effects them, that is, the human brain. Now it is a principle of Aristotle's revived by modern biology that individuation is antagonistic to reproduction, and increasing individuation is the very law of developing life, shown above all in the growing power of life's chief instrument, which is thought's organ, the brain. For, as Spencer proceeded to show in his next work, The Principles of Psychology, life means a continuous series of adjustments of internal to external relations. Therefore, the rate of multiplication must go on falling with the growth of intellectual and moral power until it only just suffices to balance the loss by death. The next step was to revive Laplace's nebular hypothesis and to connect it through Lyell's uniformitarian geology with Lamarck's developmental biology, thereby extending the same evolutionary process through the whole history of the universe. Nor was this all. Milne Edwards, by another return to Aristotle, had pointed to the physiological division of labor as a mark of ascending organic perfection, to which Spencer adds integration of structure as its obverse side, at the same time extending the world law, already made familiar in part through its industrial applications by Adam Smith, to all orders of social activity. Finally, differentiation and integration were stretched back from living to lifeless matter, thus bringing astronomy and geology, which had already entered into the causal series of cosmic transformations, under one common law of evolution, while at the same time, seeing it to be generally admitted, that inorganic changes originated from the operation of purely mechanical forces, they suggested that mechanism, without teleology, could adequately explain organic evolution also. Finally came the great discovery of Darwin and Wallace, with its extension of Malthus's law to the whole world of living things. Spencer had just touched without grasping the same idea years before he now gladly accepted natural selection as supplementing without superseding Lamarck's theory of spontaneous adaptation. To complete even in outline the vast sweep of his projected synthetic philosophy, two steps more remained for Spencer to take. The law of evolution had to be brought under the recently discovered law of the conservation of energy, or, as he called it, the persistence of force, and the whole of unified science had to be reconciled with religion. The first problem was solved by interpreting evolution as a redistribution of matter and motion, a process in which, of course, energy is neither lost nor gained. The second problem was solved by reducing faith and knowledge to the common denominator of agnosticism, a method that found more favor with positivists in the wide sense than with Christian believers. 
Herbert Spencer was disappointed to find that people took more interest in the portico, as he called it in a letter to the present writer, that is to say, the metaphysical introduction to his philosophical edifice, than in its interior. He probably had some suspicion that the portico was mere lath and plaster, while he felt sure that the columns and architraves behind it were of granite. The public, however, besides their perennial interest in religion, might be excused for giving more attention to even a baroque exterior with some novelty about it than to the formalized eclecticism of what stood behind it. Unfortunately, they soon found that the alleged reconciliation was a palpable sham. Religion is nothing if not a revelation, and an unknowable God is no God at all. Even the pretended proofs of that poor residual deity involved their author in the transparent self-contradiction of calling the universe the manifestation of an unknowable power. Then the relations between this power, such as it was, and the energy or force whose conservation or persistence was the very first of first principles seemed hard to adjust. Either energy is created or it is not. In the one case, what becomes of its eternity? In the other case, what need is there to assume a power, knowable or not, behind it? Science will not shrink back before such a phantom, nor will religion adore it. Such faulty building in the portico prepares us for somewhat unsteady masonry within, and in fact none holds together except what has been transported bodily from other temples. In the past history of the universe, considered as a rearrangement of matter in motion, disintegration and assimilation play quite as great a part as integration and differentiation. Such formulas have no advantage over the metaphysical systematization of Aristotle, and they give us as little power either to predict or to direct. Will war be abolished at some future time, or property equalized or abolished? or morality exalted, or religion superseded? Spencer was ready with his answer, but the law of evolution could not prove it true. Nevertheless, his name will long be associated with evolution as a worldwide process, though neither in the way of original discovery nor of complete generalization, and far less of successful application to modern problems, but rather of diffusion and popularization, even as other valuable ideas have been impressed on the public mind by other philosophies at a vast expense of ingenuity, knowledge, and labor, but not at greater expense than the eventual gain has been worth. The English Hegelians Hegel's philosophy first drew attention in England through its supposed connection with Strauss's mythic theory of the Gospels and Bauer's theory of New Testament literature as a product of party conflicts and compromises in the primitive church. Rightly interpreted as a system of pantheism, it was decried and ridiculed by orthodox theologians in the name of religion and common sense, while cherished by the advanced broad church as a means of symbolizing away the creeds they continued to repeat. Then 
the triumph of spencer's agnosticism in the middle victorian period eighteen sixty four to eighteen seventy four suggested an appeal to a logic whose object had been to resolve the negations of eighteenth-century enlightenment in the synthesis of a higher unity the first pronunciation in this sense was the secret of hegel eighteen sixty five by dr hutcheson sterling eighteen twenty to nineteen o nine a writer of geniality and genius who writing from the hegelian standpoint tried to represent the english rationalists of the day as a superficial and retrograde school it was a bold but unsuccessful attempt to plant the banner of the hegelian right on british soil by attacking darwinism sterling put himself out of touch with the general movement of thought professor william wallace eighteen forty four to eighteen ninety seven john caird eighteen twenty to eighteen ninety eight and his brother edward caird eighteen thirty five to nineteen o eight inclined more or less to the left as also does lord haldane born eighteen sixty five in his gifford lectures nineteen o three and all have the advantage over sterling of writing in a clearer if less picturesque style t h green eighteen thirty six to eighteen eighty two is sometimes quoted as a hegelian but his intellectual affinities were rather with fichte according to him reality is the thought of an eternal consciousness of which personality need not be predicated while the endless duration of personal spirit seems to be denied another idealist f h bradley born in eighteen forty six perhaps the greatest living english thinker develops in his appearance and reality eighteen ninety three a metaphysical system which though absolutist in form is to me at least in substance practically indistinguishable from the dogmatic agnosticism of herbert spencer and even more destructive of the popular theism finally the writings of dr j e mctaggart born eighteen sixty six teaching as they do a doctrine of developmental personal immortality without a god show a tendency to combine hegel with lotze the german eclectics by general consent the most serious and influential of german systematic thinkers since hegel is r h lotze eighteen seventeen to eighteen eighty one his philosophy is built up of materials derived in varying proportions from all his german predecessors the most distinctive idea being pluralism probably suggested in the first instance by herbart whom he succeeded as professor at Göttingen. but lotze discards the rigid monads of his master for the more intelligible soul substances of leibniz or rather of bruno whose example he also follows in his attempt to combine pluralism with monism very strenuous efforts are made to give the unifying principle the character of a personal god but the suspicion of a leaning to pantheism is not altogether eluded more original and far more uncompromising is the work of edward v hartman eighteen forty two to nineteen o six personally he enjoyed the twofold distinction whatever it may be worth of having served as an officer for a short time in the prussian army and of never having taught in a university 
his great work published at twenty-seven appeared under the telling title of the philosophy of the unconscious it won immediate popularity and reached its eleventh edition in nineteen o four hartmann adopts with some slight attenuation schopenhauer's pessimism and his metaphysics with a considerable emendation in this new version the world is still conceived as will and representation but whereas for schopenhauer the intellective side had been subordinated to the volitional with hartmann the two are co-equal and intimately united together forming that unconscious which is the new absolute in this way reason again becomes what it had been with hegel a great cosmic principle only as the optimistic universe had argued itself into existence so conversely the pessimistic universe has to argue itself out of existence as in the process of developing differentiation the volitional and intellective sides draw apart the unconscious becomes self-conscious and thus awakens to the terrible mistake it committed in willing to be thenceforth the whole of evolution is determined by the master thought of how not to be the problem is how to annul the creative will and the solution is to divide it into two halves so opposed that the one shall be the negation and destruction of the other there will be then not indeed a certainty but an equal chance of definitive self-annihilation and eternal repose thus the immediate duty for mankind as also their predestined task is the furtherance of scientific and industrial progress as a means toward this consummation which is likewise their predestined end a religious colouring is given to the process by representing it as an inverted christian scheme in which man figures as the redeemer of god that is the absolute from the unspeakable torments to which he is now condemned by the impossibility of satisfying his will like hartmann friedrich nietzsche eighteen forty four to nineteen hundred the greatest writer of modern germany took his start from schopenhauer but broke with pessimism at an early date having come to disbelieve in the hedonism on which it is founded his restless vanity drove him to improve on darwinism by interpreting evolution as the means toward creating what is called the superman that is a race as much superior to us as we are to the apes progress however is not to be in the direction of a higher morality but of greater power the will to power not the will to live being the essence of what is later in life nietzsche revived the stoic doctrine that events move and have moved through all time in a series of recurring cycles each being the exact repetition of its predecessor it is a worthless idea and nietzsche who had been a greek professor must have known where he got it but the megalomania to which he eventually succumbed prevented his recognizing the debt by a merited irony of fate this worshipper of the napoleonic type will survive only as a literary moralist in the history of thought the modern revolt against metaphysical systematization with or without a theological colouring took in germany the form of two distinct philosophical currents 
the first is scientific materialism or as some of its advocates prefer to call it energism this began about eighteen fifty but boasts two great living representatives the biologist Heckel and the chemist Ostwald. in their practical aims these men are idealists but their admission of space and time as objective realities beyond which there is nothing and their repudiation of agnosticism distinguished them from the french and english positivists the other and more powerful school is known as neocontism it numbers numerous adherents in the german universities and also in those of france and italy representing various shades of opinion united by a common reference to kant's first critique dissociated from its concessions to deism as the true starting point of modern thought the latest developments since the beginning of the twentieth century the interest in philosophy and the ability devoted to its cultivation have shown no sign of diminution two new doctrines in particular have become subjects of world-wide discussion i refer to the theory of knowledge called pragmatism and to the metaphysics of professor henri bergson both are of so revolutionary so contentious and so elusive a character as to preclude any discussion or even outline of the new solutions for old problems which they claim to provide but i would recommend the study of both and especially of bergson to all who imagine that the possibilities of speculation are exhausted or that we are any nearer finality and agreement than when heraclitus first glorified war as the father of all things and contradiction as the central spring of life end of section thirteen recording by pamela nagami m d in encino california january twenty twenty one end of history of modern philosophy by alfred william ben